So, I have a secret for you, or rather, uh, tonight's reading contains a secret, and that is the secret to contentment. I don't know about you, but contentment is something with which I have struggled for my entire life. Uh, Circumstances tend to not work out the way that I want them to. I tend to not be as happy as I would like to be. People don't do the kinds of things that I want them to do to fulfill my agenda for what I think uh, the Lord is calling me to in life. And so I wind up being discontent. And discontent is something that is very, uh, fairly common, but it's also very dangerous to, to dwell in. Uh, John MacArthur says that discontent leads to anxiety, and anxiety leads to fear, and fear leads to sin. And so anytime we're struggling with discontent, um, there is at least the potential that we're going to be tempted in order to try to feel content, to feel happy, to feel fulfilled in our own strength, apart from the will and the means that God has generously and graciously provided. And so, In tonight's passage in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 13, we see Paul talk about the the nature of contentment. And he talks about the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. I'll also say that in 25 plus years of ministry to people who have been struggling with various forms of discontent. Much, uh, much of my ministry up to this point has been uh, in counseling in some way, shape, or form. This is a passage that I have uh, felt drawn to lead many people to in order to help them work through what it looks like to live as someone walking in increasing repentance and in growing contentment but it's also a passage through ministering to others that the Lord has convicted me uh, of the fact that I don't believe what Paul says in this passage sufficiently myself. I struggle with being content to this day. And so as I preach this word to you tonight, uh, I look for the Spirit to preach it to me afresh that I would walk in the same repentance and in the same joy to which I encourage you. And so, as we look at this passage tonight, um, these will not be long points, uh, but there are five of them. They each begin with R. Um, So, rejoice, reasonableness, remember, request, and rest. The first one, rejoice. God invites us to rejoice in Him no matter what the circumstances are that we face. And here with Rejoice, we're starting out with a difficult one, maybe the most difficult point of the entire passage. We can't ignore the fact that Paul begins the the part of the passage that we started off tonight with the, the exhortation to rejoice. And he not only says it once, he repeats himself. He says, again, I will say rejoice. And whenever something is repeated in Scripture, it's usually done for emphasis. For example, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. 
Or in the Psalms, when the psalmist often repeats essentially the same idea using slightly different words, such as the the following from Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. The, The authors of scripture use repetition as a way to drive home the point that something is keenly important. And here, what Paul is saying is that rejoicing, when we feel discontent, when we feel unaffirmed, when we feel unloved, when we feel out of our own skin or out of our own comfort level because of our circumstances, what the Lord calls us to do first and foremost is to rejoice. But rejoice in what? The call isn't to rejoice just in optimal circumstances and certainly not in bad circumstances, but always, especially when things aren't going well, even when our desires aren't being met, even when we experience suffering and trials. As I mentioned before, we read the the passage a few moments ago, that's the context into which Paul is writing this portion of his letter. There is a conflict going on between two women in the church, which has become so notorious that many people know about it, and now we know about it 2,000 years later. That's how notorious it was. But it must have been disruptive to the church if Paul would address these two women in particular and not only call them to repentance and, and to work toward unity in their relationship but to call others in the church to pray for them and work with them. So how can we rejoice in less than perfect circumstances? Well, Paul doesn't ask us to either ignore the hard circumstances that we might find ourselves in or pretend like they don't affect us. As a matter of fact, Paul mentions some of his own hard circumstances. He, he says later on in verses 11 through 13 that he's been brought low, that he's faced hunger, that he has been in need. And as a matter of fact, at the time Paul is writing Philippians, he's not sitting at a beach resort uh, having his favorite drink as he watches a beautiful sunset. He's in prison. He's someone who has been deprived of his civil rights and of his freedom for the gospel. And so he knows what hard circumstances are. And yet even in the midst of these circumstances, Paul tells us in verse 11 that he has learned to be content. And in the NIV, the New International Version, it says he's learned the secret of being content. Paul tells us that contentment in these circumstances is a learned and a practiced response. It certainly doesn't come automatically, and it doesn't come easily. It's a response that's learned only as we choose to rejoice not in our circumstances and our feelings, but in the covenant faithfulness and the never-changing character and love of God. 
In other words, Paul invites us to rejoice in the Lord always because God is the one who sees us in our affliction and is present with us. As the psalmist says in Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. So those who trust in the Lord can rejoice no matter their circumstances because we know that the Lord is faithful and loving and present with us always. That was the first point. The second is reasonableness. Reasonableness, God tells us to show it to everyone. So the word translated reasonableness in verse five is the Greek word epiakes. And reasonableness is probably not a word that you would find if you looked in a dictionary or if you Googled it, and don't Google it now, um, but it, it, it's kind of a weird word. And just a, 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 a semantic gloss of what that word in Greek means, epiakes, is essentially to give up your right to what you feel you're owed. To give up your right for justice, to give up your right to feel satisfied about something, to give up right uh, to something to which you feel entitled. And certainly for the two women uh, uh, about whom Paul was writing earlier on in the passage, that would be a part of what he's calling them to. Sisters, instead of demanding that your adversary find you to be right, and retreat from her position, give up your right, give up your demand to be right. It's a word that's difficult to translate succinctly, but it means roughly to demonstrate forbearance and patience in difficult circumstances. To put it another way, it means to be willing to be humbled or to suffer deprivation or to suffer. Paul uses a variation of this Greek word to describe the, the meekness and the gentleness of Christ in 2 Corinthians 10.1. And we know that Jesus is gentle because he lays aside his wrath and chooses to show us mercy and grace because he completely atoned for the sin of sinful flesh. Jesus is gentle toward us who believe because he endured suffering on our behalf. And then in Philippians 4, 5, Paul calls us to do likewise. He asks us to make a public and demonstrable show of our willingness to be humble in refusing to demand our comfort and choosing to serve God and others before serving ourselves. As believers in Jesus, we follow his example of serving others. How do, how do we do that? So, we can refuse the inclination to greedily and selfishly gratify our own desires, and we first trust in the Lord and serve others. That's what being reasonable in our desires means here, that we trust that in Christ and in Christ alone, we have the complete and perfect fulfillment of every need and desire that we could ever possibly have. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21, where he says that God is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. And it's also what Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 8, where he says, your father knows what you need 
before you ask him. And these, brothers and sisters, these are deep spiritual truths that are meant to to form us. Please don't let them just kind of go in one ear and out the other. These are truths that are meant to take root in our hearts so that when we're tempted to misuse the opportunities the Lord puts us in and the the relationships the Lord uh, puts us in to gratify ourselves, we're going to choose to step back and be reasonable, to give up our right to those things that we uh, could otherwise do in order to get what we want because we know that God has us. He has us in the palm of his hand. We, we know, just like David says in Psalm 139, that he's written each one of our days in his book before one of them came to be. We know, again, because of what David says in Psalm 56, that God keeps a record of each one of our tears. He writes each one of them down. He captures them in a bottle. If we have a God who knows us that intimately and loves us that intimately, don't we have the freedom in Christ to resist demanding from others that we get what we want? Don't we have the freedom to be gentle? Don't we have the freedom to be forbearing with others who sin against us? Don't we have the freedom to forgive freely because we have been freely forgiven? The third point, remember. Remember that the Lord is at hand. So in many passages of scripture, there is uh, an inflection point, a a hinge uh, point at which kind of everything comes together, and that's this point in this passage, the hinge of the dual exhortations in verses five and six, to let your reasonableness be known to everyone and to not be anxious about everything, is that the Lord is at hand. But what does that mean? Well, this is one case where it means exactly what it says. The Lord is at hand, he is near to his people, he is present with his people in any and every circumstance. That nearness means that those who follow Jesus are never truly alone. The Lord is always nearby, he's always present. The Lord is near to us to help us and provide for us. The Lord is also inseparably with us through his spirit. This kind of nearness is a fulfillment of John's request, of Jesus rather, in his request, uh, in his prayer in John 17, 23, where he says, Father, let them be, meaning, meaning us, let them be uh, in me and you in me that they may become perfectly one. And so what Jesus is praying just moments before he's betrayed in the garden and goes to the cross for our sins is that we would be inseparably united to him. And that is the reality that Paul invites us to rest in today. So how is this nearness of God helpful to us in hard times? Well, we know that God is with us through his spirit in times of trial and in times of loneliness and hopelessness and darkness. 
David tells us in Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you, God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David encourages us here to consider that the mere presence of God with his people is enough to turn back the fear and power of even death itself. But there's more. God's rod and his staff, the tools of the shepherd in the psalm are meant to not only keep us, the sheep, near God, where we're safe, but to drive back the power of anything that could harm us. In short, God's nearness to us is critical to our peace and safety because he sustains us. In him, we have safety. This doesn't mean that as a follower of Jesus, you're not going to suffer. But what it does mean is that God is working all things together for your ultimate good, that you would know God better and that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus himself. What it means as well is that Jesus, the fully divine and fully human son of God, tasted death in order to destroy everything that could ultimately destroy us. And he is constantly present with his people through his spirit, reminding them that he has overcome what they experience and what they fear. Another pivotal verse uh, for me in my own struggle to believe uh, these very promises that we're talking about tonight is John 16, 33. A verse that comes just a few uh, verses before the excerpt of that prayer that I, I read just a moment ago from John 17. And at the end of a long speech of Jesus to his disciples on the Mount of Olives before he's betrayed, Jesus says a bunch of hard things to them. He says, guess what? I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be hauled off and killed, and then the religious elites are going to come after you and persecute you and hunt you down, and they're going to think that they're doing the right thing. And then he goes on to say in John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And do you see what Jesus is doing there? Jesus is saying, yeah, hard things are gonna happen. There's no getting around that. You are going to suffer. You're going to suffer severely. Some of you are going to die painfully and with your reputations destroyed in the eyes of the world. But he says, in me, you have peace. Take heart for I have overcome the world. We are in Christ right now. If, if you are someone who believes that you are a sinner who is utterly unable to be righteous before God in your own strength and that you need the blood of Jesus to atone for your sin and that he did that on your behalf on the cross at Calvary nearly 2,000 years ago if you trust that that is the only way that you can have relationship with God, then you are in Christ. And nothing can ever separate you from that place of safety. 
Nothing can ever take away your reputation. Nothing can ever utterly destroy you. Paul tells us over and over again in his letters that we are united to Christ. And that's more than a friendship. It's more than any other kind of human relationship that we would uh, be able to, to name. What it means is that Christ is in us and we are in him. In Isaiah, we're told that we are in him to the extent that Jesus has engraved his name, uh, our names rather, on his hands. Whenever he looks at those nail holes, which are still there, even now as he sits at the Father's right hand, reigning over his kingdom, he sees you. He remembers your name. He knows what you're going through. And he loves you and will never let you go. The fourth point, request. God invites us to walk with him, uh, to talk with him rather about the things that worry us. Paul invites us in verse six to not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And his invitation here is for us to have an honest conversation with our God through prayer. Prayer is a conversation. We, we speak with God as one would speak with a friend because God is our friend. We hear from God as his spirit writes his word on our hearts and through it brings specific comfort and peace and understanding and wisdom to our minds. In response to Paul's invitation in verse six, we bring before God those things that make us feel anxious. We, we bring our fears. We bring our unmet desires. We bring our circumstances, our lack of control, our disappointment, all of it to God and ask him to put our hearts and minds in the right place to experience real and lasting peace and contentment. Do you know that it's okay to say hard things to God? It's okay to be real with God. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in my heart, even before we can express it in the form of words. God wants us to have integrity, to have intellectual and spiritual integrity before him and to not put on some show where we think that we have to be the right kind of Christian in order for him to listen to us and love us. Paul tells us that when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Jesus Christ. When there was nothing lovely about us at all, he saved us and made us alive and made us glorious. How much more will he listen to us now because we are in Christ? We come to him not as wretched sinners with no hope, we come to him as beloved sons and daughters, clothed in the righteousness of our elder brother Jesus. He wants to hear what's going on in your heart and your mind. When you pray, you don't need the right words, you don't need to worry about offending God. He invites you to share your heart with him and to hear his response to you. 
Here's something else to think about. While it's fine and appropriate to pray that the Lord would change your circumstances, we should also pray that if it isn't the Lord's will that those circumstances be changed, that he would grant us the grace to endure patiently and to be changed ourselves as a result. Whenever the Lord puts us in a place of resistance, he's inviting us to open our hearts to him and ask him, Lord, what is there in me that you want to change? What is there in me that resists becoming more like Jesus? What is, in, what, what is in me that you want to draw out and replace with something good and godly? Think of the experiences of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends of Daniel who were thrown into the fiery furnace by King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3. These three men are threatened with death in the furnace by King Nebuchadnezzar for refusing to fall down and worship his golden image that he had set up. What's their response? They said to the king, our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace and out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's in Daniel 3, verses 17 and 18. Even if our circumstances do not change, we will not give in and sin because we trust that God is able to vindicate us. Even if it means our death, we trust that God is working out something good and better than we can see at this particular moment. My friends, do we have that kind of confidence before the Lord? That he has a hold of us, that he is in control of our circumstances, that he is in control of our sanctification and is working all things together ultimately for our good. And finally, the fifth point, rest. God invites us to rest in the peace that he provides. Verses seven through nine talk about a, a peace of God that surpasses understanding. Such a peace doesn't make much sense to someone convinced that their happiness is rooted in the circumstances in their life changing. But to the believer in Jesus, that peace feels like new life itself. And that's because new life is precisely what this peace is. It's the new creation breaking in and reordering the messed up, disordered state of our sinful hearts and minds. In, in a sense, it's God gradually fixing the bugs in our heart's badly infected operating system. He, he does this so that we begin to desire and to think and to act and to look like who we really are, children of God, brothers and sisters of Christ, saints in a world under the dominion of our Lord and Jesus, uh, Lord and Savior rather, Jesus Christ. But take a note that this peace of God surpasses all understanding. 
As I said a moment ago, it doesn't depend on our circumstances being changed. It doesn't depend on people being healed or systemic injustices being undone. Paul himself says in verses 11 through 13 that this peace in his heart and mind give him the power to choose to be content no matter his circumstances. And that's the secret. That's the secret. That if God is truly who he says he is, our circumstances can't define us because they can't ultimately hurt us. Even in the midst of suffering, Paul can acknowledge that the suffering hurts, but that he has peace in his heart and mind because he knows that God is ultimately in control and does not allow him to suffer needlessly. Paul describes in Colossians 3 a bit how this peace functions. He says in Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were indeed called in one body, and be thankful. So you notice there are a lot of similarities between Colossians 3.15 and what we read in Philippians 4. The, the Greek word in uh, Colossians 3.15, which is translated rule, where the peace of Christ rules in your heart, is brabueo. And that word literally means to judge or umpire in an athletic contest. When two opponents might show almost identical skill, the judge's job is to braboeo between them and decide which is the better of the two. And so in the context of Colossians 3, what Paul is saying is that when you or I are tempted to disbelieve God's faithfulness, when it seems like he's not taking care of us, we can choose instead to trust in his faithfulness because we know God and we know his character and we know his promises. How can we trust in God's faithfulness? Well, there are two ways that Paul gives us. One is external and the other internal. First, the external one. We solicit and receive the testimony of others around us. When Paul says in the passage that we're called as one body to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, he refers back to the context of his larger appeal in Colossians that the Christians must consider themselves to be part of an essential community rather than as merely individuals. And that adjective essential doesn't just mean necessary, it means it's part of their essence. We're, we're called as a, a collective into the body of Christ. Paul doesn't say that as uh, believers we cease to be individuals in Christ, but we now have a higher identity which subordinates our individualism. That higher identity is being part of the body. And the relationship we have to the rest of the body of Christ is one of necessary interconnectedness. In Ephesians 4.25, Paul tells us that we are members one of another. We, we can't live or operate without one another. Instead of independence, which we treasure, we're called to interdependence. In other words, instead of engaging in the battle for faith and contentment in everyday life as individuals, trying to steal ourselves up, trying to pull ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps, we are rather to encourage one another and build one another up 
bolstering our mutual defense to believe that God is good and faithful and in control. But to do that, we need to be in a growing relationship with other believers whom we trust. And that relationship needs to go beneath the, the surfacey things that we often talk about in the church, things like sports, work, the weather, our families. These relationships need to touch on increasingly what's going on inside in our hearts, what drives our behavior. We need to share with one another what we're thinking, what we're struggling with, and where we need help to believe God's promises. We need to be the kind of intentional friends to each other that seek one another out and help each other. Do you have a friend like that? Do you have someone who knows you well enough to know when you're struggling? Do you have a friend who loves you enough to come after you in love and to exhort you to the truth? If not, I would encourage you to do two things. I would encourage you first to pray. Pray that the Lord would open your eyes to see that kind of friend in this church maybe in your small group, maybe in a Bible school class, maybe sitting next to you right now. But if that seems like a stretch, come and talk with me, come and talk with one of the uh, other pastors or elders here at 10th. We'll pray with you and we'll help you to find a friend to walk with you in that kind of intentional love that will build you up. That's the external strategy, and as we close, here's the internal strategy that Paul gives us. He encourages encourages us to remember how God has been faithful to us in the past. And this involves reminding ourselves through prayer, through reading scripture, through journaling, through reflecting on God's word exactly uh, about how faithful God has been, not only throughout redemptive history in the abstract, but throughout the history of our own lives as well. What are ways that you can prompt yourself to remember how good and how faithful God has been to you? How he has come to your aid, how he has provided for you, how he has protected you, how he's answered prayer in the past. We we need to remind ourselves of these Ebenezer moments We need to remind ourselves of how good God has been because that will give us a paradigm through which to consider how God might be faithful to us in the future. We need to do that for one another as well. The way in which we learn to trust God is through seeing the story of his love written and and painted on the canvases of one another's lives. Are you willing to share the stories of how God has loved you and cared for you and provided for you with others? And even returning to this evening's text in Philippians 4, doing this, reminding ourselves of who God is and how he has acted in the past is a huge part of what Paul uh, exhorts us to in verse six, when he says to essentially fill our uh, minds with the memory, 
with the testimonies of how God has worked in the past. Think about these things. So friends, this is a high calling because it's a hard thing to do. It is a hard thing to choose contentment when everything in our fallen selves and everything in the fallen world around us tells us that we deserve better. And yet contentment is the way that we show our love for Jesus. Contentment is the way that we grow together as a body. Contentment is the way that we show the world out there that the gospel of this world is false and leads not to life but to death. Will you submit yourself to the Lord? Will you pray for the grace to grow in contentment? Will you pray for the grace to become someone who is able to be thankful because God is near and he loves you? Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, these are indeed hard things. But you are the God who made us to do them. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would trust in your promises, that we would know how to stir one another up, how to exhort one another to the truth, how to lift others up so that the the weak knees, the feeble knees that we have from falling over and over again uh, to sin and to self-indulgence would not keep us from standing before you. Lord, I, I pray that you would work in 10th Church, that we would become a church that is not only increasingly content, but increasingly joyful in that contentment. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us a church that wants to build itself up by member loving member and working uh, as the body of Christ to bring you glory. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen.